This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome to this latest live edition of Screen Talk and UR's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large, as well as and this guy we've never met before, our special guest, Eugene Hernandez. Do we know Eugene? He seems kind of familiar. Fill in the gap for me. Right, risen into the firmament. He used to be one of us, just another hard scrabble journalist. Everyone, you know, you all know Eugene. He was a co-founder of IndieWire many, many twenty years ago, and now he's running he's for the first time the director of the New York Film Festival. Finally, we're so proud of you. Yeah, it's a hell of a year to get started, Eugene. But we're we're really happy to have you here on your first day uh, because it's just such a such a fascinating moment in time and. You know, we've, we've worked with you, we've traveled the festivals with you, we've been a part of this festival narrative together, which means that we're kind of compromised, but having established all of that up front, uh, we have some real questions. I love you, Gene, but today we're gonna be very professional. We're gonna be very, I, I didn't get one of those, by the way. Everybody in New York is like throwing those around. The, the film I, and the I, masks, I want one. I just, I just asked you for your address, Anne, so you'll be getting yours soon. I want one. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's get into the real stuff because it has been a difficult year and, uh, you know, a lot of film institutions, like a lot of organizations nationwide, have, have really struggled throughout the pandemic. And Lincoln Center certainly was not immune to that. Uh, way back in you know, March, April, uh, you had to lay off, I believe it was half of the full-time staff and furloughed all the part-time staff. So just as a starting point, now that we're into September, bring us up to speed on, on what happened after that, how you were able to rebuild the organization and the festival to the extent that you could uh, to, to actually hold New York Film Festival this year after everything that's happened. Well, it, it's a great place to start. I mean, and thank you, Eric and Ann, for having me, former, co- former colleagues. Um, and, you know, I'm a longtime listener. Um, this year has been really challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. We did have we did have to lay off a few people. Um, thankfully, most of the almost every single person we furloughed, almost every single person we furloughed uh, from the full time staff, we were able to bring back. Uh, we had a few um, layoffs on our full time staff uh, twice this year now. Um, many of our part time staff uh, who work in in ven- in venues, including the one right behind you there, the Walter Reed. Uh, theater um, remain furloughed. Uh, some folks have come back to help us get the festival off the ground. Um, you know, it's it's been. We've talked. You know, we we've the three of us have talked um, continually over the course of these past few months of you know just checking in on each other and also updating each other on what we're all going through. And it's crazy now because now we're. A, now we're in September, where it's we're at the middle, we're in the middle of September, and the festival is about to start. Um, it it seems it seems so unlikely, and and yet it seemed like we'd be in a different place by this point. 
Um, and the place where we were in March and April was really hard for our organization. It's been it's been tough for for a lot of non for profit organizations. I'm I'm a I'm, I'm on the working advisory group for the Art House Convergence, and I'm sure we'll talk about art houses at some point in this conversation. Um, and we had a meeting yesterday uh, of that group, and what we're going through and what we're facing is is no different, and in some ways pales in comparison to what so many other arts or arts organizations are facing right now. We're we're lucky in the sense that, you know, we're in New York, we're able to have our festival. For so many art houses, film festivals are the film festival that they put on each year is like the showcase event. It's the event where you you make you make a lot of revenue. You're able to engage your audience and keep them and renew their membership and their support, uh, engage and, and, and secure sponsorship. This is revenue that, that makes these institutions run for a whole year. Um, and to not have a festival, and there's so many institutions that have had to either postpone or cancel their festivals um, can be devastating. So it's really, really hard. Uh, and in our case, you're right. I mean, we, we, we had some to make some really tough decisions. And at the same time, one of the, biggest decisions and one of the toughest frankly was back in the spring deciding to go forward with the festival um and nothing about what we decided to do then was uh a guarantee that the festival would happen that we'd have films to screen in the way that we intended um and that audiences would be there and i think um we're at a point now where we do have films we do have platforms and we do have ways for the audience to engage and and people are are um buying tickets we've su surpassed already our, our our ticket sales our ticket sale goal our revenue goal for this year's festival we passed two days ago so the audience is responding so we don't have to you're answering all our questions before before we ask them um well it's like a teaser but we can dig in because there's there's a, there's there's long <laughs> there's a lot in each of those areas well, yeah. i'm just going to go back to to the idea of of whatever you were going to do to rethink the festival you know this is your chance with dennis Lim and your programmers to to really uh reinvent something the pandemic forced you as you've just been suggesting to completely rethink and reinvent mm -hmm. and i was mm -hmm. curious to know what would have what have you done that's that 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 you wouldn't have otherwise done and, and part mm -hmm. of it is this virtual uh it's a smaller festival but it's also this virtual ticket sales thing which is really radical yeah we we could talk about the virtual piece for a little bit there's some there's some bigger picture um kind of strategic ideas that we had in mind before the pandemic that we were talking about in January and February. And we can, we can certainly get back to that, but you, you mentioned virtual. So why don't we dig in on that a little bit? Um, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had um, the kind of virtual experience, the kind of digital experience that we're going to have um, this year. I, part of it, part of it was, is an extension of something we've been building um at Lincoln Center for a while. So when I left, as you know, when I left IndieWire 10 years ago, uh, it was to work on building a digital profile and, and a digital, taking an, a, a more analog organization and trying to figure out ways to embrace digital opportunities at this organization. Um, so naturally there were a number of digital ideas and, and, and an openness to digital content that already existed going in and we have a really terrific team um, uh, on the digital side, uh, there's a guy named Jordan Raup, uh, who folks may know from the film stage. Uh, he's sort of entrepreneurial, like, like all of us. 
Um, and when we brought him in, you know, he, he really picked up the mantle uh, from some of the things that, that I started doing in digital and that my colleague, Michael Gibbons started doing, doing in digital after me. Um, and so content was always going to be a big part of the festival of, of a future New York film festival. That's just really important to me. Um, but the notion that we would be streaming films in tandem with their public screenings and to audiences um, all over the country, you're absolutely right. That that's not something we ever could have imagined or predicted, nor was the industry there, nor were distributors necessarily there. And there were a lot of really tough conversations uh, that, that we in Toronto and other festivals have had to get to this point. Um, so it's a good, it's a good, question we can dig into why let's dig further then go ahead uh, eric i'm sure we're gonna ask you the same thing why were you able to go farther than toronto did yeah well that's exactly i mean we know we know from you know some previous reporting and other conversations that there was sort of the all four major fall festivals were engaged in conversation we had cameron on before tiff happened and he talked a bit about that and what's fascinating now is that we see how so telluride didn't happen but tiff did its combination physical virtual Venice somehow from from our New York perspective inconceivably uh, was able to have a physical festival with red carpets and stuff and now you're doing like a driving combined virtual so tell us a bit about how conversations with these different entities kind of informed the shape that that you ended up taking and um, you know did you were you able to like avoid things that they were doing for example that weren't working or anything like that yeah, well, I, I, I sort of, I bristled for a moment at the question of us going further, because I, I don't think we necessarily went further than Toronto, or I, I think they've gone further in certain areas of their expression of a festival than we have, and then we're going in a different direction. You went national. The, the okay, so, so taking a half step back, um, we've been talking with Cameron and Joanna in Toronto, talking with Alberto uh, and others in Venice, uh, talking with Julie and Telluride, and talking with organizers of a bunch of other festivals. There are regular, uh, I don't know if they're weekly at this point, but they're at least bi-weekly conversations um, that our, our festival producer, Matt Bolish, is having every, uh, on, a, on a regular basis with a bunch of different festival organizers about exactly these questions. How do you produce a festival virtually? Uh, what are the best you know, ticket prices and ways to engage members and security and safety protocols for piracy, all that stuff. So all of that infrastructure uh, is a big part of the conversation. In our case, we decided to, to work with a platform called Shift72, and it's the same, same platform that, that Toronto and Sundance are working with. So we, we got on the phone over the summer, um, myself and Carrie Putnam and Tabitha Jackson and Jo uh, you know, Joanna and Cameron and, and just talked and, and our teams connected all of our teams to talk about like how, um, how this could work, whether what, what the right platform was, why Shift 72 made sense and how we could um, work with the CEO and the team at Shift 72 to enhance some of the features. And ultimately, uh, again, there was no assurance, by the way, this is a really important point. There's no, there was no assurance back then that all the work we were doing to, to, to pick a platform and to start building on it, that it would meet the standards of the high standards of Disney, which owns Searchlight and Apple and Amazon and Sony classics. And, you know, these, there are, there are stringent and 
um, understandably very high standards uh, set for anything that's going to happen digitally with uh, films coming from any of those companies, not to mention all the others that we're working with. So it's taken a lot of effort and work and negotiation to um, just to get the platform in a place where it would be safe and secure enough and, um, and available to an audience. So there's that whole piece. And so each, each festival has decided to express itself a little bit differently. We've of course been talking to the, you know, all these festivals and comparing notes, but it's um, the nature of distribution and rights are different in Canada than they are in, in the U S. And so there's that negotiation and, you know, Cameron and Joanna can speak to that and they have to negotiate with their uh, rights holders. We have to negotiate with ours. They're not necessarily the same in many cases. Uh, so there's just different um, restrictions and um, thankfully for them, they're able to be in theaters. Uh, you know, how envious are we uh, that, that folks could actually sit? I mean, I, I, I think Eric's been in a movie theater uh, recently. I haven't. Certainly, I've been, um, in, I've been in screening rooms, which yeah. is itself a, it's a something. Weird... It's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen a movie on a big screen. Uh, and, uh, tonight will be the first time since uh, since early March. Um, but yeah, we can go deeper on this virtual question if you want. Tell me which direction you want to go. But 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 that's the distinction I wanted to make. Nations and the right. The difference is that many of the titles in Toronto were acquisitions titles. Is that part mm -hmm. of it? And you had distributors who, was it a very difficult negotiation to hold them? And I also love it that in the P&I universe, you're giving a whole week for people to catch up with movies instead of the 48 hours that we had to deal with in Toronto, which was almost, um, it seems like a long time, but it was hard sometimes uh, to have all your titles that you wanted to see expiring on you. Um, it's like being at a festival. You have that one opportunity. Uh, and also the other issue was the question of, of, of you know, buzz building, you know, how buzz right, right. something and, and you haven't, you, ne you need to be able to tell somebody, you got to see uh, the disciple. Luckily, I can catch up with the disciple in New York. Luckily. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say the disciple benefits from a big screen and surround sound and stuff. So that is an interesting challenge. I mean, I, I was looking at some of the films you're showing, you know, I, the nice thing for me about New York Film Festival and traveling festivals is that I, you know, I see things at Berlin or, or Cannes or whatever it is. And then by the time New York Film Festival comes along, I have an idea of the curatorial choices that have been made. So I'm looking at some of these movies and I'm thinking, okay, um, yeah, I can see how American Utopia is gonna work at the drive-in. But then I see something like Days you know, which is a non-narrative film with no dialogue. And I'm like, you know, this is what New York Film Festival is great at. It's doing something really risky and getting people to see it. But the risk factor this year is different if it's a drive-in or if it's somebody's living room where they can start and stop or just give up. Sure. So I'm curious about your perspective on how the format changes, you know, programming decisions you can make in that respect. We, this was a big question. So our process started... Well, our process basically started in, in Berlin in February, but at that point, the world was still open to us, right? Um, we get back from Berlin, um, the world starts shutting down, and in March and April, we're making decisions about whether to push forward, whether we can financially, you know, as an infrastructure, whether we have the infrastructure, the resources to actually put the festival on. And it's, you know, serious conversations at a very high level about how we would do that. There's a lot of risk in that. Festivals costing a lot, um, but the conversations about programming are then happening in parallel, in tandem 
with the conversations about all the all that other infrastructure stuff we've just been talking about, you know, laying the foundation for the platforms and the rights and all that. That's all happening at the same time that in in May and June and July, we're watching, we're getting all these films and we're watching all these movies without can to sort of, you know, transport us away to this to this kind of idyllic place where we can watch movies, you know, you know four or five movies a day and, and really like soak it all up. We're watching. We're all watching our committee. Uh, we've expanded the selection committee this year, and our committee is watching every, you know, watching movies in their homes. I'm watching movies here um, in my apartment, and um, that's a long way of saying that we watched all these movies initially, not necessarily knowing exactly how we would be able to show them. Um, and there was a bit of, in retrospect, a little bit of smoke and mirrors because the conversations we're having with filmmakers are. Of course, we're going to be back in our theaters. Of course, we're going to have meaningful ways to show your films. Um, of course, there's going to be, you know, audiences ready for your movies when they debut in the fall. And some of that was wishful thinking. Some of that was just, will, you know, force of will to make sure that it happened on behalf of our filmmakers. But um, Eric, it was actually, it wasn't until late July where we were actually able to have that conversation where we've, we now have, we've curated this lineup. And in, again, in parallel, um, my colleague Matt and the rest of the team are like putting all these venues together. And then we have to marry the venues to the actual films and actually make some decisions about, you know, in the limited number of slots we have, we don't have enough slots to screen everything in a drive-in. We just don't physically have the space. We have room to do 35 or so nights in yeah. drive-ins in three different boroughs one screening per night. So that's then the conversation we have about, oh, okay, some people might think that Gunda is better played at home. Um, on the other hand, like we, we very quickly with that film, pick on that film as a, for example, we immediately realized that, no, that film, you know, I saw it on a big screen in a theater in Berlin. Uh, that film needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible, even if yeah, people- A black and white cars. movie about the life of the pig should probably be seen on a big screen and not at home where you might be like, am I, am I watching a movie or just the, you know, individual moments? You won't always know exactly what you're in for. You need to kind of sort of strap in and have that experience. But, so, but you're exactly right in asking that question because that was exactly the, the conversation at the end of the process was really about, okay, now we have to really like, you know, argue, duke it out to say, okay, which films, is, which films are going to get the drive-in slot and which ones are going to be uh, streaming. And, and thankfully most of the films, uh, you know, almost every film uh, are, is available on our streaming platform and, and a cross-section of them are available in the drive-in. And also really quickly on that note, there are certain things I know you can't show in a drive-in like City Hall, which is four and a half hours long and probably kill people's car batteries if they went to it. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I would have I loved to see that movie. Um, on a big screen in, you know, in a drive-in. Um, Fred and I talked about this a little bit the other day. We, we pre-recorded all of our Q&As so, um, so that they were ready and they could be deployed. This is the other thing, you're, pre, you're, you're pre-producing the entire festival or much of the festival experience in advance when you, I think we're producing 500 pieces of original video. Um, and every one of those Q&As, so like when we leave the drive-in tonight at the end of Lover's Rock, our opening night film, um, uh, Jordan and our digital team have created a podcast of the Q&A with Steve McQueen so that people as they're driving away from the theater, from the drive-in, can listen to the Q&A. And the Q&A will be on social media and it'll be on YouTube and it'll be available on the streaming platform for people watching around the country. But 
uh, point being that we had to make some decisions back in August about what, what was going to go where. And then we had to immediately start recording Q&As and conversations so they could even be ready uh, for all of these different platforms where the content is going to live. That means that you're going to be less anxious now. You have less to do now that the festival <laughs> happened. You're not going up on <laughs> stages and meeting people. I am. I am gonna. I am gonna be wearing my film at Lincoln Center mask tonight, and I will do an introduction. Uh, we decided that we would have a, a an introductory moment to welcome folks, uh, a celebratory moment, um, and to just kind of you know acknowledge, have a, have an official kind of starting point, and and acknowledge, uh, you know, the fact that we're all here. And Steve McQueen had wanted to be with us, and he he sent a, a beautiful text this morning uh, about. Um, Eric took a picture of uh, the drive-in. Uh, was that last night? You took that picture last of they night, were doing yeah. the, the test of Lovers Rock. So yeah. it's an image of you know um, of the screen with with the film, and then this empty you know empty uh, sea of which will be filled with cars tonight. Um, and Eric shared that with me last night, and I sent it to Steve McQueen this morning, and he was so moved. I don't know if you saw the press conference today, but he was really emotional about this experience and. Um, we want to be there to just kind of welcome people formally. There'll be a few other nights where there's a, there's a, there's someone in, in person, but um, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole way that that's, that that's staged uh, so that it's safe and everything, but you're right. And a lot of that, a lot of those conversations uh, are, are, were recorded. What brings anxiety now is, um, is the weather, making sure that one of these four or five, you know, tropical storm future hurricanes uh, don't hit uh, during the festival. Um, and and also just uh, getting the word out because it's a new audience. This is a totally new audience that's open to us at the New York Film Festival that, that um, you know, we're bringing this festival to different parts of the city. Did you have any uncomfortable conversations with filmmakers when you had to say to them, we thought the theaters were going to be open, but they're not. And now we're going to be doing it this other way. And also filmmakers who would have wanted the drive-ins who are going to have to settle for the digital uh, platform. We've had we've had tough conversations at every level with filmmakers, distributors, audience. Every, you know, on the one hand, it's it with ourselves internally, our staff. Everything is is not where we want it to be in our world right now in so many different ways. So this year has been about so much about uh, reimagining uh, rather than settling for something, trying to figure out how to how to tweak it or rework it. So to be honest, at the end of the day, so many filmmakers and distributors have just been, has been so open-minded. Even folks who said, absolutely not, we will definitely not show our films on your virtual platform at the New York Film Festival uh, are showing their films Give us on a our name. platform at the New York Film Festival. Come on. <laughs> 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 Wise. Talk about how you put that deal. It was the pig. It was the pig from Gunda that said, absolutely not. <laughs> and it was the cat from, uh, from French Exit. Uh, who 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 will be uh, in competition for some sort of cat feline prize, Eric? Um, what were you saying, Anne? What about the uh, Nomadland deal that sort of came together for the four festivals? Oh. Nomadland was one. yeah. Oh sure. Um, so in the case of Searchlight, I'm sure they've told you the same. You know, they they were they were this summer like every other distributor trying to figure out whether to keep their film on their release slate or to, or to um, hold it. And so they've, they're going forward with some films and holding other films, just like many other distributors. And those were, and to your earlier question, those were some of the conversations too, whether a film would be, um, would be ready for, um, 
for an audience or whether they wanted to wait, uh, whether it be finished or whether it strategically wanted to wait till next year. In the case of Nomadland, um, Searchlight showed us the film early this summer. Uh, I mean, I think you've both now seen it, right? Uh, Wonderful. I, I, I watched it again this week in preparation for recording my, my conversation with, with Chloe. And it was even more moving to me the, the second time I saw it. Uh, and I think something, it just, watching that movie alone in a moment when we're so separated from our communities and our society somehow puts your mind in a different place for that film. So, so for me, it did. Uh, I just immediately responded to it. Uh, my colleagues and I on the selection committee, we, we immediately knew that this was going to be a major film for us in the festival. And so, you know, we immediately went back to Searchlight and said, we just, we adore this film. Chloe had been at our festival with the writer a couple of years ago. And um, at one of those uh, wonderful Matt Dentler apple dinners at Cannes a couple of years ago, I sat, just happened to sit across from her and, and, Cameron Bailey and we just bonded and talked and and so it was just when you see a film that's just that good and so deeply moving with a performance that's that exceptional we knew that it it had to it had to inhabit a central place in our festival and centerpiece just made the most sense um, we didn't in our in our kind of conversations and our collaboration with these other festivals we never really talked about uh, who would show which film in which section or anything like that. We just, we knew we had all seen it. We knew we all liked it. And then we just very quickly said, well, why don't we all, why don't we hold that film up as something we can get behind and, and really in support of that film, because it's been sort of unclear and it remains unclear, right? How that film is going to be released, how it will find an audience. Um, every year, there are so many wonderful films, you know, Parasite could be a great example from last year uh, of films where the critical community, the festivals and the audiences that go to festivals and, and critics and, and journalists and, and folks just all kind of get behind a group of films and sort of help elevate them to, to bring them to wider attention. Um, I think this is one of those movies and it was just, it was like the perfect storm when it all it came together. And, and up until the last moment, you know, uh, uh, Telluride was in, was a part of that. And then it, literally, literally the day before, I think our announcement was when they had to sadly cancel uh, their physical festival, but then they immediately pivoted and we said, well, you know, they said, how can we do something that will still contribute to that experience? And they did this beautiful drive-in on I was there. in California. It was, it looked, it looked amazing. Really? Looked so. And, and, you know, when I was at the, the sound check yesterday, they were also testing out No Man Land. It was cool to see it on the big screen because I actually hadn't seen it on the big screen. That was one that I had to watch before on, on at home so it, it you know not that it wasn't a good movie that way but it was nice to see the visuals in, in the way that they were intended you were um, talking a bit about just you know how you work with distributors and I think this opens up another thing we wanted to get into because last year you know big headline out of New York Film Festival opening night was The Irishman and mm -hmm. being able to launch that movie involved your relationship with Netflix in a significant kind of way. Marriage Story was there as well. Uh, Netflix is not at any fall festivals. And um, we've heard from Ted Sarandos, their perspective on that. But what's it been like for you? What's the conversation like? When did you find out that Netflix wasn't going to do this? And, um, you know, did, you know what, what were the conversations like on your end in terms of having to deal with that decision? You guys were the ones who premiered a social network, the Fincher film. You would have wanted Mank, I'm sure. Look, I mean, I think that Netflix has some really enticing new movies coming. I haven't, I haven't seen, um, 
I haven't seen any of the new films that that haven't played the festivals. Um, but uh, certainly, of course, you know, we we talked with them early on in the year about about um, bringing some of their films to our festival. We had a, I mean, last year was such a perfect storm. It was such a wonderful perfect storm with, um, you know, marriage storm. Yeah. yeah. Well, even just opening night, you know, it was. It, Netflix and Scorsese, who we have such a strong connection to at our organization, when when that way back in the day, he used to go to the high schools with with Film Society of Lincoln Center to talk to students. I mean, he has just a deep real connection to to Kent Jones and to um, to our organization. But this year, um, you know, it was a it was a it was a nail biter, as with as with a number of films that that for various reasons aren't aren't or wouldn't be ready for this year's festival and. We have really strong relationships with Ted. You know, we had we had a, we've had conversations with Ted directly over the course of the summer as he was um, making some tough decisions about. You know, here here was the here was the thing. I don't know. If, I didn't get to watch. I'm sorry. The conversation you had with Ted, I, I have it bookmarked because I do want to I do want to listen. I have tremendous uh, fondness and appreciation for Ted because when we were at IndieWire um, and and Netflix was just getting started, um, you know, he he was just such a well he was just so, so supportive of what we were doing, but also just open to talking all the time about just how do you, you know, so as an entrepreneur, how do you create a new business? And so um, I've always felt a strong connection to him and, and to everything he's doing at, at Netflix. Um, one of the, one of the more meaningful things that he said in the, in one of the private conversations we had had, and I hope he won't mind me sharing this is that um, first and foremost for folks who are working on Netflix shows or movies um, getting back into production and keeping, you know, keeping their, keeping their salary going, you know, getting that paycheck working, whether it's working on a film, whether it's talent in front of the screen or folks behind the screen um, was, was the first and foremost kind of um, goal and priority, understandably. Festivals are an important part of an ecosystem, but it's after the film is finished and the talent and the filmmakers and everybody can, can kind of get together again and celebrate the completion of a movie and bring it to the world. Um, but I, when, he, when he expressed to me and to us the fact that um, so many people who were working at Netflix and who were working on Netflix series and movies and talent both you know, on screen and behind, behind the scenes, were struggling with um, just figuring out when they were going to get back to work. It sort of put it put it in perspective for me. Of course, we would love to be able to. I would love to see the new Fincher film. I can't wait to see the new Fincher film. Um, we're a year-round organization. Festival ends on October 11th, and we're going to have to figure out what to show on October 12th. So, to me, I'm looking forward to how we can show these movies after the festival. That it's of when movies are going to open in New York? That's a good question. Um, that, that, that's, that was, that, that's been the moving target, you know, switching gears from Netflix for a minute, that's been the moving target because um, when we made the decision to go forward with the festival, uh, and I think it was up until, what, like mid-July, Eric, here in New York, where we were like, it seemed like, oh, movies were going to hit that, what was that, that 
four, phase four, is that what it is, stage four? Yeah, the, yeah, the we reopening? didn't know, and then they pushed that into the late And phase. I think it was like July 20th was supposed to be the date that, that movie theaters were going to open. If, if the, you know, if, if everything goes well in stage three, then stage four would be August uh, or July 20th. And, um, and I remember up until like days before that, it, we all thought that movie theaters were going to open at the end of July. And when one of the many, um, for lack of a better word, support groups that I'm part of right now, industry support groups are the group of, of um, art house theater owners here in New York. So it's like regular conversations with, you know, Karen Cooper down at Film Forum and John Banco over at IFC and Raj from MoMA and Gina from BAM, et cetera. And we talk regularly and we get on Zoom calls like this and, and compare notes and how are you going to set up your theater so it's safe and where do you get your PPE and, and all the different uh, machinations. Um, but I remember being on a call with that group and it was like, okay, if we can open July 20th, like who's going to go first? Are we going to do it? Or are we going to wait? Are we going to, you know, and then the decision was taken out of our hands, understandably, because, um, you know, the governor and the mayor saw what was happening in other parts of the country. And um, our folks on our end have been in constant conversation with, with local and state authorities about what's safe. Um, Drive-ins are safe. Uh, and we are doing everything to make them even safer uh, in, in the experience people will have this, this festival. Um, would, we, would we like to be able to end the festival in our theaters and then transition right into like opening some of the films from the festival as first runs in our film center. Absolutely. That would be, I mean, that's like the dream of, you know, that that's the dream moment back in the spring. We thought our, our theaters would be open by now. Frankly, we thought we'd be in theaters in time for the festival. Um, when do you think it'll be there? I don't know. I think that um, the governor had comments about this yesterday. Um, and uh, he said, we're not there yet. It, it's, it's like, we're, we're just starting that we're just at restaurants, uh, partially reopening, I think, uh, 25%. Is that right, Eric? Yeah, um, there were in a couple of weeks. And um, I think the turning point for uh, just today, the mayor uh, announced that, that schools are delayed um, because of the number of teachers that have gotten, have gotten uh, sick um, and the number of parents that are holding back kids from schools. So I think the I think that your guess is as good as mine in the sense that I think that you know um, concerts and movie theaters and um, you know theatrical performances Broadway uh, are on hold remain on hold and um, I don't know when it'll be I, I I would love to know the answer to that I would love to it would be so much easier for so many of us in our little sector of of New York which is struggling in so many other ways so we're just one little piece. Um, but it, it would be so much easier if we knew the answer to that question definitively because it would, it would help us plan our lives and our organizations. Well, know. also all the other films that are coming out. Yeah. Actually, sure. in November or December, sure. I hope, right? Part of the sure. award season that is delayed. Well, that's going to go on forever. So you have until April to figure that out, we right? We have an eternity. I can oh only hope God. that Andrew Cuomo is listening to Screen Talk this week. Biggest award season, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I've made the same stupid joke to like three people and they've all said the same thing. I'm like, you know, if New York Film Festival really wants to get in front of audiences, they can just move to New Jersey. And everybody's like, they would never. <laughs> Not How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? But, um, but it is. Look, it, I, I don't think I, I want to say one thing to that. I, I know you're joking, but. Even our, even for us, there was a moment when when we thought, you know, we I had I had met with 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 Dan Nuxall from Rooftop right before all of this. He came over and we sat at Indy, uh, the cafe up at Lincoln Center. And 
I said to him something that I'd been saying uh, to internally, which is that we, the festival, we really wanted the festival to, to change its shape a little bit. We were going to tighten it up a little bit, but we were also going to try to take it to other audiences outside of Lincoln Center. Now, when I said that, I didn't know we wouldn't be at Lincoln Center, um, but we wanted to be in other parts of the city. And in the DNA of Film Society of Lincoln Center is this program that, that, that launched shortly after the New York Film Festival in the early 70s. Uh, it was called Movies in the Parks. And um, Film Society of Lincoln Center used to drive these vans with projectors around to the parks in different boroughs and show movies. And sometimes they were warmly received and other times they were absolutely not uh, well received. But, um, but the idea was to, to expand on the, the foundation of this organization that was built around a festival. This is before the Walter Reed Theater existed. It was just the festival. And then this education program I mentioned that had Scorsese running around to high schools. And then this movies in the parks. So what I had said to Dan was like, you, you guys are the standard bearers of movies in the parks now. You, I mean, it, and Eric knows this well because uh, Rooftop started the same year as IndieWire. So we've always had this kind of, especially in New York, this kind of close kind of kinship with that organization. And so I sat down with Dan right before the, right before the pandemic was a reality for us. And I said, you guys are doing this. You guys are carrying the mantle of this program that started in the parks at our own organization. We have to, we have to bring that back. We have to, we have to work with you to bring movies to other parts of the city this year. And, and so we, got our sort of juices going and just thinking about how to do that. And then when we called him, called uh, Dan back in the spring and said um, that we were deciding about whether to take the festival forward, carry on with the festival, um, we said to him, we can't do it without you. We literally could not do the festival this year without rooftop films and the entire team. Um, and so it, it just made that all, it, it made it all possible, but it also takes us back to our roots. Makes sense. So I do want to leave some time for a couple of questions. Sure. We have some good ones. Before I do that, though, I, I would want I didn't want to bring up one more thing, which is that totally wild John Waters poster yeah. that you guys have this year. Um, the New York Film Festival poster tradition is one that goes back, you know, decades. And, and, and I have a great solo wit one on my wall that you gave to me. Eugene. Uh, but uh, but this one feels so different because it's just it's wild, not just in a John Waters kind of way, but it's, it's like this, this very direct kind of satirical take on like the idea of a highbrow festival. So it feels very much like this is you coming in with, with, with your vision or, or at least your connection to John. And, and I think we would love to hear a bit more about how the idea came together and, and you know, what sure. do you think he's trying to get across there? Sure. Well, it, it, I, you know, I, have always loved John Waters ever since. Um, I'm trying to remember which friend. I, I, it probably was Brian Brooks, our former colleague at IndieWire, who introduced me to uh, Pink Flamingos on videotape at UCLA in the whatever late '80s. Uh, I had I had been familiar with John before that, uh, but when I was I was I used to program uh, films at, at UCLA for the student series, and when I once my mind and and eyes were open to John, I immediately started showing movies. Uh, to students, showing his movies to students, um, and I've just been a fan of his of his movies and of his wit and of, of just his approach. His, you know, I mean, Ann Thompson was the one who put him on the cover of Film Comment, but that's a whole other uh, conversation. You validated him uh, in in the Film Society's eyes years ago, and I don't know what the backstory was to get that through, uh, but you did it. it was um, 
Yes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and he still he still holds that in high regard um, because he felt validated. When 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 I um, became the the deputy executive director and Dennis became the director of programming, uh, we organized a complete retrospective on the on the 50th anniversary of John as a filmmaker. We organized a retrospective of all of his work, including stuff that had been stored in a box up in his attic in Baltimore that he drove up. Uh, you know, these these tattered film prints that were literally falling apart. And that's a whole other story that, you know, literally one of the prints burned in the projector um, at Lincoln Center. Um, one of the very first decisions, uh, Dennis and I went to lunch, Dennis Lim and I went to lunch um, just as we were accepting these new roles. And we sort of just, you know, kind of that back, back of the envelope kind of daydreaming. And what if we could do this? And what if we could do that? And, um, and, I said, uh, what about John Waters for the poster? Uh, and again, we had worked together with John, Dennis and I on this retrospective. And it was just like, uh, he immediately loved the idea. Our, our staff immediately loved the idea. I went to John and he immediately loved it because he feels a strong connection to New York and to the work that the festival shows. I mean, his annual top 10 list, which is always the must read of the fall, right? The very first top 10 list is always John's. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, he certainly pulls from the New York Film Festival year after year. Um, in all seriousness, I just felt like it, this was our chance to, we didn't know what he was gonna do or say or want to say about us. And we were open to whatever he might whatever how, however however he might try to you know take us to, to take a poke at us um and he did it brilliantly uh and i don't know it just it just felt it just felt like knowing knowing that john is someone who cares deeply about the festival uh but that he would he would bring some levity and humor to the proceedings was enticing back in whenever it was like february uh and then when, when we talked again in March after things had shut down and we were checking in on each other and how's everybody doing, how's he doing? And, and, and he said, I totally understand if you don't want me to do the poster this year um, because so much, you know, the festival may not happen and what's going to happen. And I said, John, um, we're, you know, we're deciding whether to go forward with the festival, but, you know, we've already invited you. So, um, you know, think about how you want to tackle this. And, and there was a conversation about whether he wanted the poster to be topical and timely, specific to the virus or the pandemic. And he decided he wanted it to be timeless. He wanted it to be a, 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 an homage to what, what he cares about, uh, about the New York Film Festival and the things that, that he sort of sees in the New York Film Festival. So, you know, he's, he's, he's poking at us at the same time that he's, I think, honoring the festival itself. And, and, and that's, that's as it should be in a year when, when we're rethinking so much of the fundamentals of, of all of it, you know. It does feel as if the poster represents a new uh, order, um, a, a younger, hipper, perhaps sensibility, as you guys have reinvented the festival with a younger group of programmers as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it, and that's what the, that, but that's what, uh, I mean, you used to work at Film Society, and I mean, that's the, the, there's always a refreshing of, you know, these are institutions. They're going to, and I say this at work a lot, you know, these institutions, if we do our job right, will be here way, way longer than we will. And our job is just to try to be caretakers of those institutions while we're in them, but also to refresh, refresh the people that are involved in leading them, refresh the audiences, reinvite and reengage. We're constantly having to think about how we do that. And that this year, we already wanted to do that before the pandemic struck us. Uh, but 
the pandemic also gave us a gave us a, a mission and a, and a focus to do that even more strongly. Question from uh, one of the people tuning in today that I think is a really good one and very forward looking. Tesh Ta is asking what advice you would give to smaller regional or nation based film festivals that are set to pl take place in 2021. Many of them are going to get their films from sales agents and distributors after the fall festivals like New York Film Festival. So what kind of concerns do you think sales companies will have? Concerns from the sales side of, of yeah, but I think probably the important way to answer this question is, is bigger than that, just in terms of yeah. what advice you would give, because it is true that a lot of these festivals will probably be looking at some of the films that have already premiered at New York Film Festival. Yeah, look, I this is a this is a hard one from a bunch of different perspectives because so much remains uncertain, right? Um, if we again, as like the earlier question you had about and Anne had about when our theater is going to open, it's like if we if we if we had just a couple of pieces of information and knew the answers definitively, it would help us. It would still be challenging, but it would help us make decisions. We as humans in our lives, in our daily lives, um, and also in our professional lives. Um, Eric and I are involved with a bunch of different folks in the Key West Film Festival. So that's just one example of a, of a regional, you know, uh, festival. Brian Brooks and I curate some of the queer films there and Eric's been involved in bringing critics down. And, and it's like this end of the year kind of opportunity for us all to come together and share a bunch of movies with an audience down there and, and reconnect. And, and so again, so much is, is uncertain. Uh, uh, that's just one example of a, of a smaller festival that relies on, sort of building on the profile of other other festivals or or building uh, kind of finding some films from individual festivals and then curating films say from locals and others to kind of give a, a perspective on the year in film to a local audience. Um, I think that's uh, on the sales side, the distribution side, I see tremendous openness. Again, folks that like ourselves said, we're never, the New York Film Festival is gonna take place in a drive-in. Um, you know, my films are never going to play on streaming. Um, look where we are. We're opening the New York Festival on virtual platform and drive-ins tonight. Um, so I think that I think that you you all talk to the industry about this stuff probably even more, way more than I do. Folks are really open-minded right now. And I, I, the other support group that I've been a part of this summer are are exactly the, those conversations with sales agents, distributors, um, regular conversations um, about about sort of where how does this industry navigate the, the, the future and then not come out of it. Uh, and, and, and there's still a lot of uncertainty, I think. Well, you're performing a very, very valuable function in the overall ecosystem. And we applaud you for getting it done. And you get to be the guinea pig. So everybody else is looking at well, you. Well, and that's the other point that, you know, you're talking about Toronto earlier. I kept joking all summer to Cameron and Joanna and said, I'm so sorry that you guys have to go first because they had to figure out things that they could then generously contact me, contact my team and say, okay, here's what we learned. Here's what we, here's what we would have done differently. Here's some advice for you. And then, you know, so it's like paying it forward and passing it on. And we're doing the same thing with a bunch of other festivals this fall and with Sundance and sharing information constantly. And every, every next festival that is able to, to, to endure and, and, and happened, I think will benefit the one that just happened. And then we'll see where we are, you know, six months from now or a year from now. One more audience question. This one comes from sure. Ryan Wissenot, who's saying, uh, we'd like to know if there's anything about the virtual festival process or experience that you might actually prefer 
to an in-person festival, either as an attendee or a programmer? Um, there's a lot that I prefer, or there's a lot that I like at the very least. Um, I still love watching movies in, I live in New York. I live in Hell's Kitchen. I can walk to so many amazing uh, movie theaters um, and you know, so much of cinema is available to me on a big screen. But I realize that for a lot of folks and even you know, friends of mine who don't live in New York or friends of mine who live in New York but in other parts of the city, um, that may not be as accessible. So what I like about virtual platforms is that, and what I like about this year's New York Film Festival is that um, movies can be available to folks uh, in brand new ways that allow, uh, allow them to engage with the conversation around contemporary cinema in a way that they never have. I think about myself a lot uh, you know, my, it's the opening night, and I think about my first New York Film Festival, which was 1994, Pulp Fiction, um, Avery Fisher Hall, and I was able to. You were, there, of course, and uh, but you were, I was, you were probably in a good seat. Um, I was in the back upper third balcony, um, and uh, was able to get tickets. But, and that was a transformative experience for for this person, for me personally. That that changed everything. It was like Sundance in '93, New York Film Festival '94. Those like changed who I am professionally and, and my interest in film deepened because of it. Um, how does, how does the, you know, the, 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 where does, what is the 19 year old Eric Cohn, future Eric Cohn or future Ann Thompson? Where, where, how are they going to ever get a chance to, to be sort of enticed to continue and explore the world that we're in right now? I think that uh, movies delivered to them in their home from the New York Film Festival and from other festivals is is a is a great shot and a great opportunity at sort of opening up uh the gates even more and i think it is about i think the question really uh, is about accessibility and and it's it's an important part of the conversation how are those ticket sales going and how far is your reach who are you getting to buy these tickets um they're going really well uh if i'm being honest the streaming Tickets are at this moment, uh, we've achieved our revenue goal, as I mentioned. Streaming is, is even more popular than drive-ins. Drive-ins are popular. Streaming is very popular. Each film has a, has a um, we didn't get into the machinations of this, it might be too much detail, but you might appreciate it. Each film has a cap. So we have to negotiate a cap for each movie, typically built um, around the number of seats we would have sold in old version of the festival last year so you sort of say we would have shown it once in alice tully hall to 1100 people and then twice in the walter reed and you add the numbers up and you go back to the distributor then you kind of haggle back and forth and we find a number um some films are sold out a bunch of films still have space available the streaming the streaming tickets are selling really well uh as of two days ago i haven't heard the stat today we were uh in we had audiences in 35 states in the country and growing um so on the one hand, it's our, it's our member base, which is primarily in the tri-state area. But on the other hand, when tickets went on sale to the, to the GP, to the general public uh, last week, last Friday, um, we started seeing people buying tickets from all over the place. So um, the sales are going well and the films that people are exploring and, and, and buying are all over the map. You know, we have this expanded current section, which is more the most adventurous cinema in the festival. And our programmers uh, have said very, very uh, genuinely and wisely that it's also the funniest section in the festival. Like there's the most comedies in that section. Um, 
And so it's, it, people are taking chances. People are taking risks on things that, that maybe they wouldn't have if it meant having to buy tickets and get on the subway and go up to Lincoln Center. Um, the film's coming to you. Before we let you go, when you were yeah. mentioning uh, 19-year-olds and, and, and sort of like that bringing up the new generation, it made me think about something else that 19-year-olds are doing this year, which is voting in a presidential election for the first time. And you have that Lincoln Center mask. Mine has the, the presidential candidate that I'm supporting. And um, I, I was thinking about it in light of this year's festival because I watched all four and a half hours of City Hall and I was like, America would be a better and more responsible place if everybody watched this thing because it explains how democracy works. But then I look at some of the other things like the Steve McQueen films that are dealing with racial injustice, for example, and it makes me wonder, you know, just how much this year's festival, if you watch these movies, as many people can do all over the country, could inform national conversations about, you know, where we're heading. Yeah, look, this is an unintended or unexpected um, byproduct of this process is that we, so we spent, as I mentioned, we spent, you know, a few months over the summer having, you know, trying to, to fight to get access to certain films and, and trying to convince filmmakers and distributors to, 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 to go with us on this ride, um, not even knowing how the end of the process would, how the festival would look and where it would end. So we watch all these movies and then we suddenly, you know, we're watching the Steve McQueen films just, you know, weeks after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, then, and then Sam Pollard's um, MLK FBI arrives. And then we talked about, and then Nomadland arrives, which speaks to, to me to the, the moment of solitude that we're in. The calming from Song Fang arrives. Um, so many other films I could, you know, go down the list. There's so many that, that, that speak to the moment we're in. And it's, it's true that we're, the way we're watching what we're seeing, what we're seeing in these films, some of which were written, you know, years ago and shot a year ago and just finished this year. Um, we're watching them differently. We're seeing different things in them. But when we sat down to kind of um, curate this final list, it's, it's a relatively small program, right? 25 to 27 films in the main slate. Um, and then, you know, a few films in other sections, of course, um, we start seeing these, you start seeing these threads that you, you couldn't have, you could, we couldn't have intended to, to, to have these films, to find films that would pair so nicely or connect or connect stories. You know, I, I, we, don't, we all saw Time at Sundance, right? And then uh, one of the best movies of the year, in my opinion, and I rewatched it recently for the conversation with Garrett Bradley, and I saw it differently. You know, I saw a different film and it's the same film that she made and that she delivered to Sundance back in January. And we talked about this in our Q and A. Um, so there's films that speak to each other, but there's also films that speak to us differently. And I think they do speak Eric to this uncertain social and political moment we're in. Um, hopefully they inform that conversation. This is a big decision that this country is facing in just a few weeks. Um, and it's, facing this decision at a time when we're forced to be separated from each other and um, we're forced, uh, we're struggling and, and our, you know, there's so much struggle and, and, and hardship in our, and just in this city. Um, I hope that, that these films that these like truly incredible artists have, have imagined years before this festival 
I hope that this collection, putting them all together next to each other, kind of just elevates a conversation or forces a conversation because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a vital and fundamental choice that, that, that our country is about to make. Thank you, Gene. Yeah, thanks for being here and thanks for, for covering so many issues. I hope that it didn't feel like we sugarcoated anything because we did want to go deep with you and it feels like we covered a lot. But we are rooting for this year's New York Film Festival. It seems like a great lineup. We've seen a lot and yeah. we'll be tuning in from me going to drive-ins and we'll be watching in LA. So should be a fun couple of weeks. Look, I look forward to now reading what everybody has to say because we've been watching these films in our small bubble and now we get to share them. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the debate and the discussion. So thank you for Hi. inviting me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. See always. you at the festival. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.